future of work with thanks to VHI Healthcare. Looking at the health and well-being of your employees in an ever-changing workplace with the VHI Health Insights Programme. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Future of Work with Jess Kelly and me, Gavin McLaughlin. Each week we look at how COVID-19 has pushed the Irish workforce to change how business is done. Today we're talking about automation. How will this technology change not only manufacturing but also how services are delivered and how people do their jobs. Later in the show, we'll hear from Mark Gray, the country manager for the UK and Ireland with Universal Robots. He'll tell us how robots can help out in the workplace and why they may not quite be coming for our jobs. And we'll hear from Barry Devro and Paul O'Fearon from law firm McCann Fitzgerald, who have had the help of robots in reading and analysing documents. First though, Gavin, I want to chat to you a little bit about um, this whole notion of robots and automation, because I actually think... The robots have had a tough time of it. I think they have a bit of bad PR. I think a lot of the conversations that are had around this technology is we should fear it. But everything that I know about it is that we should actually embrace it with open arms. Well, tell me a little bit more about that, because this is one of the great topics that we often cover uh, in here is are are, are the robots come to take our jobs? And I know you've covered it a lot. Mm. So why, uh, after everyone you've talked to and everything you've looked at, have you kind of decided actually it's a good thing? So a lot of the times in the in the in the examples that I've looked at, the they're more collaborative robots rather than robots that want to come in and present your show and then present my show and then go home again and do it all again. <laughs> they don't have no any interest in that. Where they're very very useful is where there are um, you know very heavy materials to be moved where there's very specific um, materials that need to be cut in a specific way, when there's very mundane, repetitive tasks that, you know, you or I would would get sort of repetitive strain injuries from, these robots can keep doing it. They also don't need sick leave. They don't need social distancing. They don't need to wear masks or sanitizer or any of that jazz. They can just get things done. And why I don't think we should be worried about that is because the robots still need supervision. They still need human quality control. They still need human ideas and innovation to make what they do that bit better and that bit more efficient. But I think absolutely bring it on. If your job, you know, I don't know if you've seen Charlie and Chocolate Factory, uh, the Tim Burton version. Um, That's that with Johnny Depp as Willy Wonka. Yeah, the one that will give you nightmares. Yeah, no, no. give you nightmares until you die. But um, Charlie's dad works in a tooth factory and his job is to put the cap on top of the toothpaste and twist it and because of the rising sales in chocolate the, the sales go up in toothpaste and then the firm can afford to buy a robot so poor Charlie's dad is out of a job because the robot mm. can now twist the, the lid onto the toothpaste much faster much more efficiently than the humans can and I think that's great like, why would Charlie's dad want to be doing that? Would he not want to maybe look into a management role or an admin role or maybe the finance of the company? I think that's what we, the humans, can get from this level of automation is that we can be then freed up and educate ourselves to get more meaningful work. And I know that sounds bad, but that's genuinely what I believe. Is it actually going to happen, though? I mean, I, I, I agree with you that probably in some cases it will happen. But uh, if you go back to Charlie's dad for a minute, and you're talking about him retraining himself, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, obviously that costs money. Mm. Uh, if he's embarking on a period of retraining, he may not be getting a salary. He obviously has a family to support. So it, it makes things kind of very difficult. Um, and, you know, while I certainly can see the advantages for the, for the firms, you know, that you've outlined around saving money, et cetera, et cetera, and, and robots not getting sick, you know, if you can save save cost by by putting them in, Maybe you might say, look, I'm not sure I want to add in additional costs by going off and retraining all my people uh, and uh, getting them to do various things. So I there, I think it is possible in some cases that, uh, mm. you know, we'll, we'll be free to go off and, um, you know, do, you know, do these jobs that aren't as repetitive and boring, maybe. But in other cases... Uh, I do think there will be some people uh, who are going to lose out. There, there may be, right? But there's like I've read a lot of studies about sort of the, the wants and aspirations of young people in the workforce. We spoke about it quite a bit in series one as well. And one of the things that stands out is that young people, and when I say young, I mean like 25 and under, 
They don't want to do meaningless, repetitive tasks. They want a job that has meaning, that has a purpose and that they personally make an impact. And so I actually think in a few years time, we're going to struggle to fill some of the roles that are more um, sort of manufacture lines and warehousing and all that sort of stuff. I actually think we're going to struggle to fill those posts because younger people won't want to do it. And so what businesses who are smart or if they're smart would do would be to embrace levels of automation and then figure out where the humans fit in to ensure that maybe there's better brand awareness that could be done. Maybe there's better training that can be done. Maybe like I just think there's so much more to any industry than just the repetitive tasks. And I think if you don't, if companies don't embrace and upskill their staff, they'll actually, the company in the long run will be the one that gets left behind mm. because nobody's going to want to work for them. No one's going to be want to want to be affiliated with them. And yes, they'll have the robots to do the boring stuff, but that's not enough. Like you do need to think of a business from the top down, from the bottom up. And I think if you look at that, there is a place in a lot of industries for automation. Like we use it here in the radio industry. We have schedulers. So like there's not, you know, 35 people sitting in a booth reading every single ad live. That's not how it works. And we don't even have someone pressing every button for every single ad. It's automated. And that makes our lives easier. Um, That doesn't mean that we're going to be out of job, touch wood. But it means that there is a space for automation. We've embraced it. It works for us. And then it frees us and the other creative people who work in ads frees them up to do other stuff. So so again, I didn't realise I feel so passionate. I feel like this is my like election <laughs> speech or something, but I'm very passionate yeah. about this. Well, I mean, the, the robot broadcasters is a funny idea. I mean, I have <laughs> heard, heard talk about it before and uh, who knows, some some people might think it maybe would be a bit of an improvement. I don't know. Well, um, but uh, I mean, I take your point about you know, companies obviously need to appeal uh, to the workers of the future and they want to make themselves an attractive place to work. I understand that. But given that we're in the middle of a financial crisis, uh, you know, I do think to make the the double investment, if you like, both in robots and in a large retraining uh, and and skills program, if you like, uh, is going to be a challenge. There are other reasons as well, though, why um, companies might want to go down that road. And and in, in some cases, it's actually because they find it difficult uh, to mm-hmm. get people to do the jobs, as you alluded to. But it's not always for for the reason that you mentioned, which is, uh, you know, that, that people just don't want to do these jobs. I remember hearing Paul Coulson from our DA group about three years ago. I was at a, an American embassy event. And our DA group are, is a massive manufacturer of glass bottles and cans. Uh, and so they've got a lot of factories, obviously a lot of manufacturing roles. And they do a lot of business in the U.S., and he was talking about what was going on there. And he, he Paul Kilsman was saying, actually, we're kind of looking seriously at taking more automation into our factories. He said, and I'm quoting to you now here, the labour pool is difficult. It's difficult to get people who are drug free, etc., etc., and to train people. We're having to put a lot of emphasis and investment into training people and retraining people because it's difficult to get people. Also, labour costs in some areas are quite high. So that's an example, I think, there of, of a company who you know, has decided there's a lot of problems out there. Humans are giving us a lot of headaches. And actually, do you know what? I think I'm going to look at robots going forward. That to me is, I think it's interesting. And obviously they're they're all valid points to a certain extent. But you're never going to be able to run your business 100% with robots. I don't think anyway. Obviously it depends on what you do and how you do it. And we're going to talk to the guys from Universal Robots in a little while, but... You know, I think you can't uh, you can't overstate the importance of the human brain, the empathy that can come from people, the understanding, the ideas. You know, I think if you go down that route of just saying, you know what, people are expensive. Let's just get these robots to do this. Robots can fail. Like what happens if you have a Jesus power outage and then nothing's going to be done and you don't know how long it's going to take to repair? I don't think that it's a foolproof solution. And I don't like the idea of saying that it's one or the other. I don't think it should be one or the other. I think we need to find a way to collaborate. Like I I do think that, you know, the, the way we, the consumer, have embraced technology in our home is a good example. Yeah. I'm more than happy to have a robot vacuum cleaner that'll go around and do my living room and my kitchen at two o'clock every day. And I'm more than happy to have Google Home turn on my telly when I get in in the evening. 
but I don't want them doing anything else other than that. Like I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to do things my own way. I want the technology to work with me so I don't have to do the mundane stuff that I don't enjoy. But I love cleaning my counters. Like I don't want a robot cleaning my counters. I enjoy doing it. I also enjoy doing the dishes. I have a dishwasher, but I do the dishes myself. Like so that that's it's the picking and choosing so that it makes our lives that yeah, it's about, about autonomy, isn't it? And that was kind of, I suppose, what we were discussing last week when we were talking about uh, remote working and things like that. Um, you've you've alluded there to robots and people working together, and I think that's a really interesting point because when people think about robots in the workforce, I think they tend to think of them as being in factories mm. like the Arda factory that I'm talking about there, and there's these big robotic arms and they're manufacturing, you know, bottles or cans or the manufacturing cars or whatever. But actually, I think they have just as much application uh, in services as well. And, and uh, you know, we're going to be talking to McCann Fitzgerald, uh, the, the mm. law firm, about that about that a little bit later. Um, so I think particularly in areas like accounting, you can see, you know, maybe you can get artificial intelligence to do the, the various bits and bobs. Uh, and, you know, then yeah, you can use the human brain to kind of be a little bit more uh, creative, if that's what you like, or, or the same, uh, you know, in, in a law firm. I haven't heard of a robot that can come up with a compelling legal argument just yet, but I have heard of ones that can kind of go through documents and, um, you know, identify, pat- you know, patterns in the text, etc., etc., and they can help you that way. So certainly in the service industry, I do think there is uh, a lot of scope for, for this collaboration uh, yeah, that you're talking about. like it's funny, you say you haven't heard of, of, you know, robots that can come up with compelling legal arguments. There's a new type of artificial intelligence that if you scan in, so say if you keep a journal, if you were to scan in a few pages of your journal and then you run this AI program, it can then insert and compose a journal entry that even you would question whether you wrote it mm-hmm. or the computer wrote it. it. It picks up your little non-account, like your little phrases and the ways that you use the language. It's terrifying, but it's brilliant. Another place where automation has been brought in, and I actually think they've made a balls of it, is in the customer service industry. If you are trying to get through to a human being on whether it's your mobile network provider or any provider and you hear the please press one for help press two if you want to throw your phone off the balcony (laughs) like those kind of automated messages drive me bananas and what we're actually seeing now is that some businesses are reinvesting in their customer service because they've realized that that's an area that you can't actually skimp on people want another person on the end of the phone. They want a person to help and to to guide and to understand frustrations when there are frustrations. That doesn't mean we scrap the automated um, customer services entirely. I think one good thing that Facebook has done is on Facebook Messenger, particularly prominent in the US, if you want to know what time a particular store is open, so say you want to get yourself a new Notions code from Tommy Hilfiger and you want to know what time does the store on Fifth Avenue open. I don't know if there's one in Fifth Avenue, but let's just run with that. Mm-hmm. Fifth Avenue in New York. Rather than having to call up or anything like that, you can just chat to a chatbot on Facebook Messenger for that particular store. And so you can say, what time does this store open at? Do you have this product in, in stock? Yeah. Do you have it in my size and can you put it aside? All of that's done in a text-based conversation with a chatbot, essentially. But you're still getting the same service. So those small things when there's nothing wrong, I think is great. And it's very, very beneficial. It's more when you, like if something goes awry, if you've been overcharged, say if your phone bill comes in and for some reason it's 600 euro and you're like desperately trying to get in touch with a person to figure out what went wrong and what could be done. And if you're met with that, press zero to hear these options again. You will absolutely absolutely lose the will. And I think that customer service is proving to be, particularly over the last 12 months, but customer service is proving to be one of the issues that is pushing people to move provider. And I think that for me is an area where automation just doesn't quite, you know, cut the yeah. mustard yet. Well, I mean, it, we've all seen the stories about air and I've experienced it myself as an air customer. Absolute disaster. And, you know, to be fair to them, I know they, they, they've said they, they've acknowledged that they had got it wrong and they've mm. put a lot of, a lot more resources in into it to try and get it right. One other area I want to touch on with this that I think maybe doesn't quite feature in the discussion uh, as much as some other areas is what's going to happen to our streetscape. Now, we know, obviously, that e-commerce... Uh, is booming at the minute and 
part of uh, the e-commerce boom is there's a, a lot of jobs for delivery drivers, people mm-hmm. going around delivering packages to people's houses. Probably some scope for uh, robots to get involved there as well. Obviously, drones, yeah. they get talked about a lot as as uh, an area where this can happen. And also, if you see, do you ever see those little videos of, they're like little... Um, R2-D2 kind of things mm-hmm. <laughs> they're little small yokes like a little post box or something and they just trundle they can just trundle along the ground uh, and they have the package in the middle and this thing rocks up uh, at your front they door they scare me do they? Oh, I bloody hate them. I'm not into them at all. Like, I've seen, so when I was in Seattle, I was in Seattle a few times in 2019, right? And I was going about my business and the, I actually had to say, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me, to a robot that was rambling down the street. Like, the robot was rambling down, bringing a parcel to somebody and I was <laughs> in its way. So me, the absolute gombean that I am, was apologising to a robot that nearly knocked me down. I have no time for those, but I do think they're going to very in. polite. Uh, I do think they're going to come in and another word on the drones I didn't quite realise because I'm kind of familiar with you see people I mean I don't want to call them toys recreational drones mm. say and you're kind of used to seeing them around and they're not uh, they're not that big but uh, I did a piece on this a while back about you know some of the drones that, that can be used for e-commerce and the guy said these things are the size of a kitchen table Oh, like they have flying kitchen tables mm. uh, going around the skies of Dublin, uh, bringing bringing packages to people. So, I mean, it is it, it's a cool area. I think it, it doesn't particularly bother me, but it is um, you know to return to the point you were making earlier. That's clearly a, an area where there needs to be some human control involved to make sure that the flying kitchen tables aren't causing too many problems. Yeah, that would be ideal. I mean, Bobby Healy is leading the charge on this frontier in Ireland with Man of Drones. And maybe he's someone that we can chat to in the coming weeks. But he very much is of the the view that there's a level of automation, but a human is still is in control. So I think that is a really interesting point. Uh, we are going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we are going to chat with Mark Gray of Universal Robots all about how robots can help us not steal our jobs. Future of Work, with thanks to VHI Healthcare. Looking at the health and well-being of your employees in an ever-changing workplace with the VHI Health Insights Programme. This is News Talk. Welcome back to Future of Work with Gavin McLaughlin and me, Jess Kelly. I'm delighted to say that we're joined now by Mark Ray, the country manager for the UK and Ireland with Universal Robots. Uh, Mark, you're very welcome to the show. I've spoken to some of your team in the past and I'm very intrigued by what Universal Robots does, but also the, the, the messaging that you have when it comes to this technology. Um, you might, from the very outset, just explain what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, the robots that you guys produce. Okay, so uh, Universal Robots make collaborative robots. These are the robots that can work alongside people, um, not necessarily with machine guards, so we can share the workspace with humans. And it's kind of revolutionary because we can take over a lot of simple tasks that the normal big industrial robots wouldn't be able to do to increase productivity for people. So it's kind of taking away the strain from operators and uh, giving them a helping hand, if you like, to produce the goods that they make. And that's what's so revolutionary about us. I've seen some of your robots in action um, over the last number of years, and I, I'm always struck by just how side-by-side side the, the robots and the people are. The, the collaborative nature of it, why is that important? Because, you know, we were saying in part one of the show, I sometimes feel like robots get a bit of a bad rep, you know, that they're here to take our jobs. But from what I've seen, that's just absolutely not the case. It's true. Robots don't take jobs. Robot takes tasks. And what that means is that humans have always used technology to be more efficient. And there's a great quote from Steve Jobs. He did a a bit of research when he was a student about looking how animals got between two points. And the most efficient animal to get between two points is a bird. It just soars on the thermals. It puts very little effort in. When you look at a human to get between two points, it takes a lot of effort to get between those two positions. But if you add a bicycle to that human, then they become much more efficient. So if you use that sort of technology and that idea for manufacturing is if you can uh, use a robot as a tool, you can make the uh, products that you're making faster, better quality, and also take the strain from your employees. So robots aren't necessarily going to take anybody's jobs. They're going to take tasks and make our work life better, basically. 
Yeah, which I think is absolutely a good thing. Um, the, the pandemic, I suppose, has shown the importance of people in business around the world. Uh, people are still needed. But do you think that this is a good time for certain industries to maybe reimagine how things are done and embrace the notion of robots or cobots? I do. In particular sectors with regards to the pandemic, we've sold robots into testing labs for carrying out part of the PCR test for COVID. And what that's done is that's increased the efficiency of those productions, uh, those production labs. So from something that took an hour and a half to process a tray of samples now takes eight minutes with robots, which means that more people can be tested. So we're starting to see that robots are being implemented into different factories and different tasks to increase the productivity to make our lives better. And that's true in food or electronics, all sorts of different sectors, really. The, the 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 point that you make there about you know cutting down the time for that one task alone is pretty phenomenal is is the output or the improvements made by the robot and the cobot is it always measured in terms of time or are there other metrics that can show that it's a worthwhile investment you can also see that robots have got a better repeatability than a human so you're taking skill out of the equation so robots are much more repeatable so you make less scrap um, and also, it can cost you less money to make a product. So there's lots of examples that we've seen where a person and a robot together have increased efficiency. So the, the cost of the goods have gone down, the time it's taken to gone, it has taken less, and also they've produced a better quality item at the end of it. So there's different ways of measuring that. Productivity, cost and quality. How's business been for you, Mark, uh, during this pandemic? Is there evidence that... This has kind of spurred people to invest in automation maybe for the first time? It has because the the, the way that we see manufacturing moving forward, we're going through a trans- transformational period really where the technology is available, but motivation to change has been re- relatively slow. But because of the pressures that it, business are seeing, they're having to use to, uh, robots and automation more readily now. And that's to fill things like the labour gap, but also robots can help with social distancing. If you look at a typical food production line, everybody's closer than two meters together. So maybe by implementing a person, a cobot, a person, a cobot, you can achieve some sort of social distancing. So we've seen uh, the uptake in our products increase throughout this pandemic, but that was a natural trend that was happening anyway. So obviously people want to try and make more products at less cost and make better products. So that they're being driven towards that now. I want to return to the topic of uh, jobs for a minute and I heard you saying there that robots take tasks uh, not necessarily jobs but I have to say I'm kind of sceptical about this because the tasks that that are being taken I mean they're normally being done by people these are people who are getting paid wages and if they've got fewer tasks to do well obviously the company might say well you know what am I paying these people for now you might say look they can go off and be retrained and they can learn new skills and they can do new jobs but that often involves investment uh, for companies as well, which obviously is costly. So, uh, you know, I, I put it to you, Mark, it has to be the case that some jobs are going to be displaced by this technology. There are cases where some jobs are going to be displaced by it. But if one of the, the main things that we say is if we made a collaborative robot to work alongside people, if robots were going to take all the jobs, why would we need to make it collaborative? It's been made to be in the same workspace as a human. The big industrial robots that you see out there, they've grown throughout industry in things like the car plants and all the sort of major big packaging plants. And we've still increased the the size of those companies and we've invested in more people to go and work with them. But it's true that robots will also create new jobs as well. What what kind of jobs are are you talking about there? We estimate things like technical jobs for programming and technical support are going to increase tenfold over the next sort of 10 years because... As robots start to become more part of our fabrication of our society in all sorts of different aspects, not just manufacturing in factories, people are going to have to look after those robots, going to have to be able to program those robots and be able to integrate them to other parts of processes. So humans have always strived to make things more efficient and better, and they've always used technology for that. So the, uh, the collaborative robots is just a natural extension of that process, really. You mentioned packaging and cars, and they're, they're kind of two industries where, where, where people, I think, would readily associate this technology. What other areas of manufacturing uh, are, are we seeing this come in more and more? Um, I, I'm kind of interested to, to, to see, you know, 
how much uh, of the nitty gritty can these things do? Okay, so the, there's a real range, but one of the, the two main sort of sectors that we see expanding over this next two to three year period are the pharmaceuticals and um, sampling sector is going to increase massively. Laboratory automation is going to uh, increase massively. And those are where the robots are helping make components or assemble components for drug delivery devices, diagnostic devices, and so on. And then also the electronics industry. All the major car manufacturers have just announced in the last two to three weeks uh, that they're going to go to electric propulsion. So the electronics industry in the UK and Ireland will have to change massively over the next five years to be able to cope with the amount of work that they're going to have to do for the automotive industry. So all sorts of different types of electronics, whether it's service mount, whether it's printed circuit boards, are going to have to increase. And we see that as a perfect sort of application for, for robots because of the repeatability and the sort of meticulous tasks that they can carry out. So there is a real range. There's a real range of different sort of manufacturing sectors that can be used in. But those are the two main sectors that we see expanding quickly. And what about skills, um, Mark? I mean, do you think there's going to be uh, enough skills out there to kind of do these jobs as they arise or or will there sort of be a a delay, do you think? I think the governments have been really interested in what they've done now is that particularly in Ireland, they're investing in these skills throughout all the technical institutes and the universities. So we have robots in those organisations now and they are creating courses to train people, the next generation of engineers, to implement these products into industry so yeah i think we're, we're ready now with it's it's fashionable to get into this kind of industry now to have those kind of um, people trained up so that they're going to be ready because in the next five years we're going to need a lot more robot programmers than we have currently it's always going to expand in terms of um the the setup of these robots but also the quality control check and ensuring that they are doing things uh, to the highest standard and meeting all of the criteria that's in place to ensure the safety of the different products and substances that they're working on. How often do they need to be maintained and checked up on in that regard? So the robots, once they're set up to do a task, um, don't really need much checking once they've carried out that particular task. Once you've set up a routine, a menu of files, if you like, it can continue to do that day in, day out. Um we ask that the robots are just checked once a month. You just check the technical aspects of temperature of the joints and so on. But there's no real need to reprogram it every single day. Once you've set up a, a recipe of the, the file that it's going to do, then that's it. You can just leave it to carry out that task until you want to go and do another one. And the beauty of these products is that they're so flexible. Traditional big industrial robots are designed for one task and sit in one place. But it's possible small manufacturing companies can use cobots and actually move them around the factory to give them multiple different tasks. And they've got the flexibility to be set up really quickly. So typical, a new task can be set up in about 30 minutes, depending on what, what task it is. But 30 minutes is a typical setup time to get a robot to do a new task. And that's the beauty of them. They're so flexible that the smaller companies can move them all over the factory and change the, the end effectors, the grippers on them, to give them multiple different duties. So it means that they're going to pay for themselves a lot quicker as well. In terms of future proofing, because you just alluded to the cost there now, so are these like normal technological devices in that they can get software updates and have new features? And what will the typical lifespan of a cobot be? So um, we've got robots that have been in production now for probably about nine years. Depending on what you want to do with them, it's all sorts of different um, uh, stresses and strains that are going to be on the robots. With regards to software, the software upgrades that we do is free and that's available to download from our website. So we're always adding new features into the the software that we have. It's a piece of software called Polyscope and you can download it and run it offline if you want to. So we're always adding extra features into it and improving it and making making it better, the user experience better. So you said there that, you know, before long the robots kind of, or the cobots can kind of pay for themselves. In the case so, in the case studies that you have, how long is it before that kind of happens? And does it vary depending on the, the scale of the business that the robot is in? Yeah. So when we talk about payback periods, we usually talk about between nine to 12 months payback on a single robot doing a task. If you employ somebody on minimum wage, our robots cost similar to a minimum wage for an employee for a year. So if it's on one shift, on one eight hour shift, the robot will pay for itself between nine to 12 months. If you're carrying out three shifts, then it's obviously it's a lot quicker than that. 
Now, the thing to mention is robots ultimately become cost neutral. Because if you have a robot doing a task for a year and it's paid for itself, the following year, the savings you've made will pay for another robot. And that's what we see is when robots are put into a process, they ultimately become cost neutral. That's pretty cool. In in terms of then the not replacing people, how do we, like I, I know you, Gavin asked you about this, but just in terms of if they are that efficient and if people are reinvesting the money that they're saving back into getting another robot, where are the roles for the human, for the, the long-term employee who's worked for a company for 35 years and who's now working alongside a robot and potentially going to be replaced or, you know, less busy, I suppose, as a result of a robot, where does that long-term employee then go or what do they do? So we see them being uh, redeployed to different parts of the business where they're using their skills because robots don't have creativity, they don't have intuition and they don't have particular uh, skills that are intuitive. So they're just carrying out a repetitive task. Now, all the studies that we've seen when robots have been implemented to a company it's actually added jobs to the company. There's a great case story of a company in Denmark that added 42 robots to a company. And over the two and a half year period, they didn't get rid of anybody. They actually created 50 extra jobs because they could produce more product. They won more market share. They had better quality and it created more jobs in logistics, in accounts, in sales. So it actually created jobs. Productivity creates jobs. That's just a, that's a case in point. It's a it's a natural fact. If you can make more product at less cost with better quality, you'll win more market share. Companies will increase. People need to increase with the company. It's it's a sort of simple metric, really. Hmm. Now, I'm a big fan of this technology. And as I said earlier on in the show, I think that, you know, embracing automation makes perfect sense. But there will be people shouting at their phone or their smart speaker or their radio, wherever they're listening to this now going, but what about health and safety? Because if you have a robot which has been programmed to do certain tasks and it's doing its thing at its own speed and all the rest, but people are working in its vicinity, um, are workplace incidents and accidents more likely to happen? No, because our robots are inherently have an inbuilt safe system as part of their architecture. We monitor the force in the joints continually. And if the robot collides with somebody, we have to put it into what we call a safeguard stop. So we've designed them to be safe, to be around people from scratch. That's that's the inherent part of our safety architecture. And they have limitations. So they can't move that fast that they're going to injure people. And they have limitations on the sort of weight that they're going to carry as well. So they've been designed to work in this sector, to work alongside people. When we talk about the robots, we talk about... There's a a great sort of um, saying, it's 3D. There are 3D jobs, dirty, dangerous and dull jobs. And if you can automate those out, you should. Well, at Universal, we talk about the 3D to the 3B. The 3Bs are three benefits. It's better quality, better productivity, but more importantly, better health and safety for the workers. If you've got somebody using a screwdriver all day, they're going to get repetitive strain injury. If you've got somebody lifting boxes at the end of a conveyor all day, they're going to get a sore back company called Sanofi did a, a, um, a study and they found that their operators actually carried about 700 kilos a day by picking and placing boxes and putting them onto a pallet. If you could automate that process, you should automate it because it's going to take that task away from the human, leave them to do something else, but they're not going to injure the back or injure the wrist. So that's what we talk about, the 3D to the 3B. It's a nice little way of summing it up. Um, in sticking with my unsexy questions, what about the energy drain and environmental impact from, from that side of things with these uh, robots? Are they are, are they heavy consumers? They're not. They just plug into a normal socket, so they take 220 volts, very, very low power, and um, low impact installation. So energy-wise, they're just the same as using a computer. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's like very interesting. I would love to hear uh, from any companies around the country that has embraced this type of technology. You can email fow at newstalk.com. Uh, there is a brilliant company called Dairy Master based down in Tralee. 
and Edmund Harty runs that company. He has a huge, big, I think it's 16 acre site and on it he has uh, robots that can cut the parts for their wearables for cows and they can do so many more but they still have all the same number of employees if not more since they embrace this technology because they're now free to do other stuff and they've got so many new projects on the horizon as a result of the productivity of the robot so I think it's brilliant and uh, we really do appreciate your time that was Mark Gray the country manager for the UK and Ireland with Universal Robots stick with us here on Future of Work because coming up next we're going to hear from a law firm who's embraced technology Future of Work with thanks to VHI Healthcare looking at the health and well-being of your employees in an ever-changing workplace with the VHI Health Insights Programme This is News Talk. Welcome back to Future of Work with Gavin McLaughlin and me, Jess Kelly. Every week we're tackling different issues relating to the future of work here in Ireland. Next week's show is going to focus in on the future of skills. We'll take a look at schools, what they're teaching, what works, what doesn't, what employers are looking for and more. We'd love to hear from you. So if you do have any questions, comments or suggestions, you can email fow at newstalk.com. Now let's get back to how automation will change the way we work and we're joined by Barry Devereaux, Managing Partner of Law Firm McCann Fitzgerald and Paula Fearon, who is Head of Project Services at the same firm. Thanks for coming on, guys. And Barry, I'll start with you. How's business, first of all? Because these financial crises can spark a lot of litigation, but they might put people off certain things as well. Yeah, good morning, Gavin and Jess, and good morning to your listeners and thank you for having us. Uh, on your your series, we appreciate that. Um, our business depends on Irish business sentiment and also international business sentiment because a lot of our business is international. So, uh, when when uh, confidence, which underpins that, uh, is is um, affected, then it, it changes everything. And I think what happened last March was the uh, the, the pandemic hit us so hard so quickly. Um, that the confidence evaporated from the system. So business people lost that confidence of transacting business. And a lot of businesses came to a, a sudden stop. And, you know, it was a very difficult period for the first couple of months. We were firefighting, wondering uh, where this will lead to. Uh, how will we come out of this? Will we, will we be different? And it was about survival, to be honest. Um, but gradually, things picked up. And my sense is I've been 30 years in in this business, and I've lived through economic crisis in the UK in the 90s and in the 1990s, late 90s uh, in Singapore, the the Asian financial crisis, and obviously 10 years ago we had our own financial crisis. And the lesson I've learned from all of that is that business will eventually prevail. It will find its level. It will it will step back and uh, it will suspend activities when things as difficult as the pandemic hit our business. But eventually they'll work their way around it, a bit like we did with Brexit. The initial shock gave way to business confidence coming back into the system. So yeah. things are have picked up. And on your very point, Gavin, about litigation, yes, there is more litigation. There are more lawsuits. We're running a lot of court cases virtually at the moment through our uh, our technology. And uh, yes, yeah, so I'd say business levels are you know, certainly back and uh, business confidence is back in the system, which is the critical ingredient in, in, in making the world go round. Yeah, and I think it's often at times like this that technology uh, it kind of becomes more of a pressing issue for firms if they're if they're kind of looking uh, to save cost uh, and, and things like that. Now, in terms of you guys, Barry, I mean, we've probably been talking about four years, uh, uh, for four years about this topic of, of automation in the legal industry. Just explain first, in a broad strategic sense, what is it that automation offers your business? Um, that's a that's a good question, Gavin. I think automation for us is about efficiency. So it's you know our job is to give the very best service to our clients, and that means uh, the best solutions to issues they face in the fastest time and at the least cost. So anything we can do with technology that allows us to get to the answers more quickly, more efficiently, uh, is, 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 is good for our business. And obviously, it's very good for our clients where our mantra is we have to add value to our clients' business in order to remain relevant. So automation has been part of our business. And in fact, I might uh, hand over to Paula because you know, we were talking yesterday about how long we've been doing this. And Gavin, you and I have been talking about it a couple of years about this. But it goes back a long way. And we have some interesting examples for your listeners as to the kind of things 
that we have brought to bear to the benefit of our clients. Yeah, Paula, why don't you pick up the point there? Can you just give us some practical examples of the things you offer uh, in this area? Yeah, sure, Gavin. Um, I suppose to put that discussion into context is probably useful, as Barry says, to sort of outline the evolution of what I'll call legal legal technology or, or, or automation um, as it's deployed in the legal industry. And I guess McCann Fitzgerald were pioneers in this area and we have been incorporating legal technology into our service delivery for um, for a long time now and investing heavily in technology. I may be showing my age when I say that um, I first used legal technology in the firm in 2002 where we were deploying it. Uh, in our litigation work and I think it's worth sort of explaining how how legal technology came about so that we can then speak to how we now use it. Okay. Um, so I suppose it, it, legal tech has hit the headlines in a big way in the last couple of years but its evolution has been a, a slow one. Um, we started using it as I say 20 years ago in litigation specifically in discovery and I'm, I'm not sure if your listeners will be au fait with the concept of discovery but it is a pre-trial procedure in Irish litigation in which each party to a dispute must hand over to their opponents documents which are relevant to their case and in litigation involving companies that traditionally would have meant them printing out or photocopying all the relevant documents that they hold and handing them to their lawyers for absolute review. nightmare absolutely well it was an absolute nightmare back in the in, in the golden years of, of of hard copy documents but when we moved to email being the key method of communication the nightmare became uh, you know, even worse because printing out vast quantities of emails which corporations were producing would have produced a tsunami of paper for lawyers to get through and it wasn't possible so we needed to automate and we did using technology and the first generation of legal technology were really very basic systems that allowed lawyers to review digital copies of documents rather than hard copy and even that innovation in and of itself allowed lawyers I mean it transformed that task of discovery and the cost of discovery and the technology then developed it became more sophisticated and more use cases became apparent and that the technology that had its origins in litigation found application across other areas of law where large volumes of paper were also causing problems like in big uh, corporate or uh, real estate and finance transactions and legal tech is no longer confined to software that helps us cope with large volumes of data it now helps us with things like document automation compliance monitoring, effective transaction management. It's pervasive across all of the work that we uh, do as a firm. Let, let's um, just pick up on the, the, the point about the, the large volumes of documentation for a second. I, I think it's got to the point, Paula, where it can actually help you sort of scan the documents, read them, if you like, and sort of flag up, here's something you need to look at. Exactly, yeah. So AI-assisted review um, is, is key to a to a lawyer's work, particularly where they're they're operating in the, in the corporate world and in in that world of large volumes of documents. So, um, to give you an example, um, we use a piece of software called Kira. We've been using that since 2016, and we use that to help us review documents in transactions. Um, I, I, I give you a, a good example where we had recently a client who uh, was going to purchase a large shopping centre with multiple tenants um, very interested in what the lease documents said and particularly in what the uh, change of control clauses, the rent review periods. We were able to uh, use Kira to review the documents, pull out the information that was uh, contained in those clauses to very quickly enable us to advise our clients about the the intricacies of those clauses. And and that output informs real business decisions in the context of a commercial negotiation. And Paula, what's the difference between using this thing and what it would have been like without it? How much time is saved? Huge amounts of time um, and actually accuracy is also saved because um, in in those kind of um, t- tasks that are capable of being commoditized, the kind of reviewing a document to find a, a piece of text and pulling that out uh, for a review, that those kind of tasks which would have traditionally been done by junior lawyers, um, they are done much faster. I mean, by, you know, f- reducing time by 50, 60 plus percent, um, but the results are more consistent and that frees up the lawyers to do the work that really adds value for their clients, which is the analysis and interpretation of those uh, results. Um, so it's a win-win for, for, for the clients and for the lawyers. Uh, Paula, can I ask a question? My favourite topic in the world is GDPR, right? I could absolutely talk about it until the cows come home. Between GDPR, data protection in general, does this type of technology 
help in keeping the privacy and the protection element of GDPR and data protection because a person isn't actually reading through it or does do the same sort of fear factors apply? So it's a really good question, Jess. Yes, and yes, it does is the answer. So um, we would have seen when with the introduction of, of GDPR, we would have seen that uh, technology just on a purely advisory side being deployed to identify where contracts that were already in existence, whether or not they needed to be amended to bring the contracts into compliance with GDPR. And then in terms of the actual contents of documents, we, on the discovery and investigation side of our business, we would use the technology to identify personal information and to, uh, where it's appropriate, to remove that uh, information from human review so it doesn't need to be reviewed. So, so yes, it does help um, and help enormously with, um, and particularly in a world where we're seeing a lot more, and this has increased with the pandemic, a lot more of intermingling of personal and professional communications where people are mm. using um, you know, they're using media that they never would have used uh, previously for, for business communications. And so you do really need to tease out what's private and, and, and what is the professional communication you're after. Yeah, one other question. And again, I think this is only in my head because I watched The Good Wife a few years ago. But in terms of the traces left by technology when it comes to a legal matter, I mean, can you use technology, like it can, can technology be used in that regard as well? So if you have somebody's cookie report from their computer, for example, can that information be read and utilised? And is that beneficial? You know, the little footprints that we're leaving behind here, there and everywhere. Is all of that of benefit as well? So absolutely, and depending on the context, we would absolutely look, uh, as you say, you always leave a footprint um, when you access um, uh, technology, you always leave a footprint. And sometimes that has uh, that can prove to be of hugely valuable evidential uh, uh, assistance in, in cases where you're trying to figure out, well, who accessed that information. So for example, in a cartel or anti a, 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 a competition case, you can see who accessed information, who they shared it with, um, and and there's some really really interesting AI that we have at the moment that we're using sentiment analysis, where you can um, identify where people are behaving outside of their usual behavioural norms, accessing information they wouldn't normally access, emailing out of hours, sending information to domains that they wouldn't normally use. So so the AI is really helping us in 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 that area as well. One more question for you, Paula. I mean, we've talked there about some of the areas that you're using this technology in. Uh, Where does it go from here? What new areas do you think there's scope uh, in in the legal world to broaden uh, the use of this automation? I think the possibilities are um, endless, really. Um, I think while we've been at this for for 20 years, there's still a lot um, of more, um, uh, I think, uh, innovation and value-add that technology can bring to our industry. I think we'll see an increase in the use of AI in um, decision-making and in um, in uh, predict predictions of outcomes. So we've seen it in the US um, it's being used by law firms to determine what arguments will be particularly attractive to particular judges uh, to help them win uh, cases. We'll see a, a much... Yeah, we'll see a much greater use of the AI in that area, and also of the. Um, we've also again in the in the US seen where um, courts are using algorithms and AI to assist them in in making um, fair and appropriate uh, sentencing decisions. So where the the AI is deployed to take the the human prejudices out of uh, the decision making um, uh, and. Obviously, we use what I, in the legal industry, we use what I call augmented uh, intelligence, which is to take the output of the artificial intelligence, which is the automated output, and overlay that with human um, analysis and judgment. And I think that we'll see much more of that combination of the automated output with the overlay um, going forward. And I, I think we'll also see um, a lot more joined up thinking. So the legal tech that's been in, in place at the moment is very compartmentalised. So you have a, a tool that will do one thing but not another. And I think we'll see much more end-to-end solutions being built and um, and there's a lot more development, I think. Yeah, all, all the dots will be joined up. Okay, Barry, I'm going to come back to you then with the question that everyone wants the answer to when we talk about this topic. Are these robots going to take people's jobs? Um, that's, uh, yeah, that, that is a question people ask. And my view on it, Gavin, is that you know, we are already cohabiting with robots, whether we like it or not. They're in our business. 
they don't walk around looking like robots, but they're in our business. And we would see kind of peaceful cohabitation with the machines, which is what we've been doing for years, uh, and getting the best out of both. So your question is, if robots do things at an infinitely faster pace than a human mind can do it, um, does it mean that you have vast swathes of people who'd be redundant? And interestingly, if you look at, say, the last five years, our business, in terms of numbers of people, has grown by at least 30%, and yet we are embedding a lot more technology into the way we do things. And I think the answer is that technology opens up new frontiers. So it opens up new areas that didn't exist before. So, for example, just give you a few examples, say driverless cars are going to open up a vast range of, of, of legal issues. Look at the health area at the moment with the vaccines and all the legal issues around that, the passports, you know, that whole technology changing uh, the, the health and you know, the patient's records and the huge implosion in uh, explosion of data protection. I mean, Eric Schmidt in Google said five years ago, he said between, nine, between the dawn of civilization in 1970, if you look at the accumulated data created in that thousands of years period, we're creating more data in two days every day now than we did back then. And that was five years ago. So you can now probably think two hours. So there's been huge, huge uh, explosion uh, in data creation, technologies opening up, all sorts of things. Um, Ireland is a real hotbed for innovation amongst tech companies. So with all these pharma and medical devices companies in Ireland, they're spawning a whole lot of uh, people setting up their own business. They need investment. You know, we're acting for quite a few of these uh, companies that need investment, need them to protect their software, need to protect their employees and things like that. So I, I think for us, what's really interesting is that technology opens up frontiers that, you know, we might have thought the world had four corners to it. But with technology, anything is possible and our numbers actually are growing. So it does put the lie to the fact that, you know, technology makes lawyers and people redundant. What about uh, competition? I mean, you guys, um, as we've mentioned, you guys have been doing this for a long time and you were kind of pioneers in, in the space here. Is Are people around town sort of doing the same thing now? Is competition in this regard becoming a bit more intense? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we're pretending that we're on our own on this. Obviously, I'd say we can safely say we were a pioneer in this, but people have seen the benefits of it and other firms are doing it. So our job is to continually seek out new solutions, new way of doing business. And just to add to what Paula said, you know, automated document production. So we are helping a client at the moment who creates a lot of contracts in their day-to-day -day work. We're giving them a self-serve technology where there are people out in the field as they conclude sales contracts can sit in their car with an iPad and answer a whole lot of questions. Yes, no, yes, no, in a technology platform we've created. And by the time they get back to the office, the contract is there, printed, ready for them to sign. So I think all of that, you know, is is the future, enabling clients to do a lot of it themselves so that uh, they can get on with their business and uh, be, be more efficient about how they go about solving legal issues. OK, well, thanks very much for that, guys. I look forward to seeing how it develops over the next few years. And, and, and Paula, just to your point about how it can actually be used to help in the, the, the court system as well as, as with the law firms is kind of an interesting one because uh, I definitely think there's scope for, for a lot more technology to be brought into that process. So uh, we shall see how it all goes. That's Barry Devereaux, Managing Partner of Law Firm McCann Fitzgerald and Paula Fearon, Head of Project Services at McCann Fitzgerald. And that is all we have time for this week. If you do have any questions or comments, you can email fow at newstalk.com and we will answer as many as we can with our expert guests over the coming weeks. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast on the Newstalk app, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It will be available as a podcast first every Wednesday afternoon or on the radio here on Newstalk every Saturday from 7pm. We'll chat to you next week. Future of Work on Newstalk with thanks to VHI Healthcare. Read our expert report on social interaction in an ever-changing workplace at newstalk.com forward slash VHI Healthcare.